You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And I'm delighted to be joined today by somebody that I've really wanted to get on the show for a while now, uh, but have been remiss in doing so uh, for whatever reason. Joining me today is uh, M. Taylor Fravel, a professor of political science and the director of the security studies program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today. That's great to be here. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing doing pretty well. Uh, you know, I think we've all been better uh, given uh, that we're several months into a pandemic. And for those of us in the United States, obviously, it's uh, been quite a week uh, when it comes to uh, everything going on. But of course, we're not here to talk about uh, those developments or even the pandemic today. Um, so for listeners who might not be aware, uh, Taylor is one of the foremost scholars of China's periphery and including its border disputes with uh, many of its neighbors. Uh, he's the author of, among other things, um, uh, strong border, secure nation, cooperation and conflict in China's territorial disputes, a, uh, an authoritative study of the subject. And more recently, uh, his latest book, Active Defense, China's Military Strategy Since 1949, um, is also a great look at the evolution of the People's Liberation Army's thinking about um, national defense uh, as, as an enterprise. And I actually uh, conducted an interview with Taylor for the Diplomat not long ago about that book. And I recommend uh, listeners take a look at that if they're interested in learning more about that. Um, but Taylor, I'm, I'm especially glad that you're here uh, because I've had a lot of demand from podcast listeners to talk about the ongoing kerfuffle, so to speak, or dust up, whatever you want to call it, at the India-China border. Um, this is something that uh, both of us were following quite closely back in 2017 when we had a major 72-day standoff um, on a piece of Bhutanese territory, relatively obscure until that standoff known as Doklam. Um, and I did a lot of writing and coverage on that. But I haven't actually been doing a lot of writing on the current round of India-China um, border issues. And one of the reasons is it's actually very unclear what's happening where. There have been a lot of conflicting reports, primarily from uh, Indian sources, uh, given that we do have generally more reporting on the Indian side. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we'll together be able to shed a little bit of light on the situation at the border. But you wrote a great piece for uh, the Washington Post's uh, Monkey Cage channel on, on the general dispute. And I think the place to start might be a little bit of situational awareness, because we're going to be hitting our listeners with terms like the line of actual control, Pangong Lake, Galwan River, Sikkim, you know, the 2003... Uh, agree, uh, the 1993 Agreement on Peace and Tranquility between India and China. Um, and I just thought it'd be a useful place to start would be for you to maybe tell us a little bit about the origins of Sino-Indian animosity uh, in this particular part of the Himalayas. Sure, thanks. I mean, how, how long do you have? <laughs> um, a f if you can do this in a few minutes, I know, I know you lecture for a living, but uh, a few minutes uh, would be ideal. Yeah, no, I mean, the, 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 I guess I, I just make a couple of quick points about the origins. Right? It goes back really to the founding of both India and uh, the People's Republic of China as independent sovereign nation states in the late 1940s and uh, how their relations evolved uh, in the early 1950s. And by about you know, mid to late 1950s, right, it, it was clear to leaders on both sides that they did not view the alignment of the border as being uh, in the same place. And I won't go over sort of all of the history there, except to say that that I think is when the border dispute crystallized. It involves, generally speaking, three sectors uh, in the east, about 90,000 square kilometers. It, uh, back then was known as the Northeastern Frontier Agency, or NIFA, is now the Indian state of uh, Arunachal Pradesh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, then uh, you had the western sector, where we're seeing most of the activity today. That's about 33,000 square kilometers of land. 
I should add that the eastern sector has really since the 1950s been under Indian control and the western sector uh, uh, by that same token has been more or less under Chinese control. And then you have the central sector, which is kind of west of Nepal um, and uh, sort of east of the western sector to confuse people further. And that's about uh, roughly 2000 square kilometers of land. And so basically you've had this dispute where control has been divided. Uh, India has a dominant position in one side, China has a dominant position in the other side. And due to sort of sort of uh, tensions that escalated in the late 19, late 1950s and into the early 1960s, that the two countries uh, fought a, a short but intense border war along the entire front of uh, the disputed border. China uh, attacked India first, um, uh, moving across in two different phases, first in October and then in November. And from China's point of view, it was uh, trying to sort of uh, eliminate Indian pressure on the border that from their perspective had been mounting, especially in early 1962 under what is uh, sometimes described as the forward policy under uh, Nehru of, of sort of the Indian o occupation of, of territory, especially in the Western sector uh, of the dispute where, where China, I think, has uh, placed the most attention because of a road that connects uh, Xinjiang with Tibet. Now, uh, there have been periodic dust-ups afterwards. In 1967, there was a pretty intense artillery battle um, uh, in a place that's uh, along the sort of Sikkim border with China. And then in 1986-87, there was a very intense standoff in a place called Sundarongchu or Wangdong, which is in the eastern sector, and more or less in the same place uh, where the war started back in October 1962. That led, uh, uh, I mean, those events in the late 80s uh, really actually were the spark for normalization of ties between the two countries and to efforts to actually uh, bring, bring about some kind of agreement leading to the confidence building measures in, in the 1990s. But it's, right, it's never been resolved. Uh, there is no agreed upon uh, border between the two countries. There's something called the line of actual control, uh, which has a very long kind of history and different usages at different points in time. It's sort of the de facto border today, uh, but it basically just rever refers to a line that divides uh, Chinese and Indian forces who still garrison and patrol these areas uh, quite regularly and intensively in some cases. And so uh, sort of what we're seeing today is basically uh, a an sort of renewed Chinese, Chinese activism, especially in the Western sector, there's also an incident uh, uh, adjacent uh, to Sikkim to again at a place called Nakula, but the real sort of focus of activity has been in the Western sector, primarily uh, in the Galwan River Valley, uh, uh, Pangong Lake, and an area uh, known as sort of the Hot Springs. Right. Well, so that was a tremendous tour of the force in, I believe that was around four minutes, which is quite okay. impressive. Um, but I think we we covered mo most of the main terms, and uh, I know I know for many listeners that's um, probably just going to be scratching the surface uh, because there is a lot more depth to this, as Taylor indicated. Um, so, you know, what I've been trying to make sense of what's been happening uh, recently. Um, so one of the things that's quite notable, and and I think you highlighted this well in your Washington Post piece, is what we're seeing right now is in a way not new, which is the idea that. PLA, uh, presumably PLA, are pricking India uh, over the line of actual control. That much we are, we've grown used to, even in the 2010s, uh, even before Doklam. Uh, but what is new is the intensity and the variety of places in which this is happening at the same time. We have around three, give or take, hotspots in the Western sector, 
and then we had a standoff at Nakula in Sikkim. Is that is that a fair description that matches your assessment of the situation? Yes, that, that sounds about right. Yeah, and I think at the core of what we're learning is, um, and I was I was joking around with uh, Shashan Singh, who's been one of the um, better Indian reporters on this beat for a few years now, frankly. Um, that I think what we're learning is that the line of actual control um, is a very misleading term to many people uh, because you look at maps of this area and you see many of these maps will have a a line of actual control and that seems to indicate you know a common understanding. Um, but also uh, you know Nirupama Rao, an Indian uh, a former senior Indian diplomat, actually the former Indian Foreign Secretary, had a very good thread on Twitter, sort of helping people make sense of this. And you know she pointed out that. The line of actual control is misleading in many ways because this is not mutually defined. It hasn't been mutually de delineated, and it hasn't been, and has never been demarcated, which means that what we're talking about, and when you read these Indian reports talking about Chinese troops on quote Indian territory, and the Chinese Foreign Ministry comes back and says we have Indian troops on Chinese territory, what you really begin to see is, I think, a, a very fuzzy area when it comes to talking about this line of control. Is that is that is that fair, Taylor, or do you think there's uh, something more going on here? No, it's totally fair. I mean, I, and I, I almost think the line of actual control should just be called the line of separation, right? Because that's basically what separates Indian and Chinese forces. But it, it's clear, given that much of this to, uh, territory is uh, remote and uh, desolate in some cases, the terrain is rough, that actual control is not exercised on either side all the time by either side, right? It, and I think why you get these... Uh, different incidents at different points in time is because both China and, and India want to increase their presence uh, along the disputed border, uh, primarily through road building and also through patrolling. And that then leads to uh, moments whereby it's not, you know, or, or whereby questions are raised about where exactly this line of actual control lies and whether or not Indian forces have moved into what China views as its territory or Chinese forces have moved into what India views as Indian territory. And of course, in many places, and I thought the number is only 13, but Shushant has an article yesterday putting it in the 20s, and there may be at least 20 areas, right, where, where each side views the location of the, the line of actual control or the line of separation differently. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the better demonstrations of this idea, I think, is Pangong Lake. It's this, uh, you know, uh, again, listeners don't have a map in front of them, which I think is a shame with the podcast format. But, you know, imagine this snaking horizontal lake high up on on the uh, on the Ladakh plateau and um this lake has what are known as fingers effectively little uh, little outcrops of land and at various times indian and chinese patrols conduct patrols to overlapping parts and this has been sort of accepted practice for a while but obviously as as one might imagine this does lead to times of tension when the two sides come very close to each other and and despite how tense the border has been i think it's important to emphasize that you know there hasn't been a shot fired in 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 decades and yeah, uh, 1975 uh 1975 there we go uh the at last time at least like the last death in the border was 1975 right but we what we do see and what we do see with Doklam is uh you know there's the phrase that the indians love to repeat which is uh, eyeball to eyeball standoffs um along along the disputed border although Doklam technically wasn't part of a disputed border um but um i think i think uh the current uh situation a part of the reason it's been quite concerning is that i think we saw scuffles and uh you know people getting down to fist fights and tossing rocks at multiple points along the border, all, all within a span of a few days. Um, and I think that intensity, if I'm not mistaken, is somewhat unprecedented in recent times. 
Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, I think the the previous uh, moment would have been, I think, one kind of brawl around Pongo Lake back in 2017, but before that, uh, relatively infrequent. And in this case, right, there are certainly reports of uh, multiple brawls in some of these different locations, Nakula as well as Pongo Lake, and, and, and they seem to have occurred over, in some cases, a couple of days, or maybe they've occurred repeatedly. We don't actually have necessarily great information because the information that we do have is, as far as I can tell, right, is, is essentially coming from uh, sort of sources within either the Indian government or other parts or, or the Indian military and then being sort of reported in the Indian press. So I don't know if we have the full kind of picture of what's happening, but clearly kind of uh, the shoving and all that stuff uh, maybe is unprecedented uh, in terms of scale today than what we've seen since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I do want to dig in a little bit about the sources of our information, uh, because I think it's been quite interesting to, um, depending on the reports you read and depending on the specific reporter, whether they're talking to an Indian military source or an Indian diplomatic source, you hear very different things about about what's happening at the border. And that's actually part of the reason that, you know, I've been trying to wrap my head around all this before uh, saying too much more, at least in writing. Um, because if you, most of the military sources have been treating this on the Indian side as unprecedented, serious, tantamount to an invasion in some cases, whereas diplomatic sources and, and many um, uh, many senior political leaders in the, um, in the BJP government in India have been really restrained in talking about this, basically, uh, depending on, again, who you read, implying that there have never been any Chinese troops at any point on what India considers to be its own territory, or that, you know, there is something happening, but it's all being managed via diplomatic back channels. Um, right. It's just it's just tremendously hard to make sense of. But on the Chinese side, I'm wondering, what are the sources to really make sense of really what is driving China here or why China is doing what it's doing? Well, there are basically no sources uh, for a couple of reasons, right? One, uh, China does not have a free media, so you can't have enterprising journalists, journalists like Shushant Singh, who, who, by the way, I think is absolutely an outstanding uh, reporter in, in all respects. I think he's done so much to bring uh, light as well as heat uh, to our understanding. But you don't have uh, that dynamic in China, right? So you can't, uh, you know, call up someone you might know in the PLA and ask them about the situation. Uh, more generally, uh, in this dispute, and actually many of China's border disputes, China never reports on what it believes to be incursions by the opposing side. And in fact, I, I, I'm not really aware after 1962 of China ever uh, providing kind of detailed reporting of what it might view as Indian transgressions of the Chinese line of actual control or, or the line of separation. And so we're basically left with what, we, what comes out of the Indian side. And then finally, you have a few sort of tantalizing tidbits in uh, the Global Times, which you know I treat with great caution, uh, because although it is a, a party, although it is a, it is a newspaper linked with the People's Daily Publishing Group and thus a, a party paper, it doesn't uh, necessarily uh, speak authoritatively. And they have had a few uh, sort of op-eds they've run by kind of uh, Chinese scholars, which I think are probably an effort at signaling. But of course, these individuals don't really know what's uh, going on the border either. And so it is really difficult if one wants to try to understand the tactical situation on the ground to be able to do so uh, by uh, uh, going through uh, Chinese uh, sources, right? It just makes it, it's, it's a, and it's always been this way, right? This has always been very, very difficult. Uh, one minor exception was Doklam. Uh, and Doklam, we got more information out of China, largely, I think, because 
China viewed Indian forces then as crossing across even what India recognized as an international frontier, although India believed it was going into Bhutanese territory and Chinese believed it was resident in Chinese territory. So China published some maps and, and sort of more information that they normally do. But basically, it, it, it's an asymmetric uh, information environment. This is not to say, right, that the reports coming out of India are are systematically uh, sort of biased. It's more to say that uh, the information is incomplete. And oftentimes the Indian sources don't report on certain elements of Indian activity that you might want to know more about if you're trying to understand uh, sort of Chinese responses. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the one of the most fascinating comments actually from any Indian source was um, General Naravani, the chief of the Indian Army, who I believe early on in May actually talked about aggressive behavior on both sides, which I found yes. kind of fascinating coming from an Indian army chief. Um, and, and one account of Nakula, right, has a, a junior Indian officer punching a more senior Chinese officer in what appears to have been the first blow, at least of that particular account, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and now this one is published because it's sort of glorifying the younger or the more junior ranked Indian officer standing up and protecting his uh, his senior officer in the face of kind of aggressive moves or posture by the Chinese. But the but the broader point here is that we, we don't we don't know nearly as much say when compared with the South China Sea, where at least um, um, governments are more willing to speak out on all sides, and we have overhead satellite imagery that is pretty actually easy to interpret relative to what we might have on the China-India border. And so there's a little bit of a better sense of kind of what's happening. Um, um, finally, I would say, right, you can't trust and no one should trust any line that appears on any digital map, right? I don't know where Google gets its boundaries data from, right? It's not clear if this is the line of actual control, these are the claim lines. Um, and of course, Google shows different lines based upon which country it's in. and so. Uh, but no, but nothing I would say on Google Maps or maybe any of these other sources should be taken as a definitive sort of rendering of what uh, what the line is or how it is seen by both sides. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the one thing we haven't really discussed is that there has been a fair bit because we live in the era of highly persistent, um, high cadence satellite imagery. There have been again dueling analyses in this area, with uh, various people claiming various things. But again, um, you know, while we can point to Indo-Tibetan border police infrastructure and PLA infrastructure in the area, because the fundamental question I think is this very fuzzy line of actual control, which is literally I think a very fuzzy line. I mean, it's 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 almost a a blurry sort of zone of, um, you know, I guess uh, I guess it was a Vipin Narang on Twitter who said that it was a zone of perceptual ambiguity, uh, which I thought was actually. Um, kind of nice. Um, when you're talking about things like this, it really, the geospatial analysis even uh, has limited value because you are talking about differences in political perceptions on on the ground. Um, but I think I think the final place to maybe go with our conversation today is to talk a little bit about um, why now. Uh, this has been something that's cropped up in a lot of Indian reports. With everybody has their pet theory. This is you know China making the most of the pandemic. This is China pushing back on the Indian press, uh, celebrating Taiwan's response to the pandemic. This is uh, India, uh, China teaching India a lesson for cozying up to the United States, what have you. Um, but you know, I think you had a narrower analysis in your Washington Post piece uh, mm -hmm. focused on changes to the status quo on the Indian side of the line of control. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about um, about that? Sure. Let me bring in some thoughts I shared on a Twitter thread as well. They didn't quite make it into the Washington Post piece. But uh, I think my broader you know, view here is 
looking at kind of patterns of tensions on the border, right, going back to the 62 war. And one thing that I think is striking is major, major episodes and events seem to take place in the spring, right? Uh, primarily because of the inhospitable nature of the environment. This is when the snow melts, activity resumes, and uh, sort of mischief can be made on both sides. But certainly the spring of 1962 is when uh, India rolled out the forward policy, the challenge Chinese posts that had been put up over a longer period of time beforehand, but China was also doing much of this uh, in the spring, or at least in the summer. Uh, the night, the 86-87 standoff at Sundarongchu or Wangdong right, had to do with India and China competing over an area that had that was originally demilitarized after 1962 to create a seasonal outpost. And India had gone in and occupied this for several years, I believe, starting in 83. And then China decided that uh, they didn't want that to become permanent. So they went in and occupied it in 86 and thus sort of uh, set off the string of events. You had Chinese road building in Doklam, uh, which is looking a little bit later in the spring, um, but you know, early June. And so there is a seasonality here that I think is important because it links to the second point I would make, which is that uh, certainly based upon everything I've read, uh, really primarily coming out of Indian sources, right? There's a great commitment on the Indian side to improving its position along the line of actual control. And where India has some natural strength that China lacks is in the Western sector. And so last year you had the completion of the DSDBO road. I'm not sure I'm going to pronounce the names of all of these places correctly, um, the, but it you know, goes from the northern part of the western sector where there's an airfield at a place called Dalit Bek Oldie, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, down to uh, two villages known as Shyok and Darbuk. And this basically gives Indian forces lateral movement along much of the western sector, although not all of it. And then uh, there's a much broader effort now right, to build feeder roads and, and sort of a goal of completing this by 1962. Um, thirdly, uh, and, and so, so there's just a lot, there seems to be much greater Indian activity, especially in the Western sector, right? Because uh, it's much easier for India to access the Western, the line of actual control in the Western sector than it is uh, for India to access it in the Eastern sector. And so, you know, my sort of Occam's razor simplest explanation is that um, China has always been pretty sensitive to, 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 to Indian efforts to improve its position, even though overall China enjoys a pretty strong position. Uh, and it has it uh, tended uh, to respond what it views uh, India as, as making gains that might uh, shift uh, or alter the situation along the line of actual control. And I think what we've seen most recently with the completion of the DSDBO road, uh, along with a lot of other things that have been happening within it, within India on the border, that uh, the Indian position has improved. Uh, Indian newspaper reports have talked about for several years now the way in which the Indian posture has improved along the line of actual control in terms of the frequency and scope of patrols that India has been able to undertake. I suspect that uh, China has been observing this uh, and uh, that got their attention. Uh, why now in the spring? Um, it appears there, you know, of, 19, of 2020, there, there appears to have been some uh, additional construction of these speeder roads. And I also just wonder, I can't prove this, but I wonder if there's a sort of a, a hangover of, of Doklam where I think India really did catch China by surprise, um, both with where it moved into sort of undisputed either Bhutanese or Chinese territory, but not Indian territory, and the way in which they did that in 2017. And so I suspect uh, uh, China, China's res response today may also be sort of uh, 
influenced by sort of the sense of, on the part of those in the PLA watching the border that they need to be extra vigilant about Indian actions. And so if there is greater construction in some of these areas that might enhance India's posi position, it could uh, quite likely be what would elicit a, sort of a Chinese response. Mm -hmm. now, I admit that this is speculative, right? And we talked earlier about data sources, it's hard to come by, but it does seem to fit like with, with sort of the, the pattern of crises that we've seen on the border uh, since 1962. We didn't get a chance to talk about uh, more recent ones in 2013 and 2014, but uh, it's probably pretty similar. Right, right. And so, you know, just uh, one last thing is potential off-ramps. Um, so Doklam, I think, ended with a face-saving, quote, disengagement. And um, I think it's fair to say that if you ask a fair bit of the Indian commentariat on these issues, um, the perception is that India came away from Doklam preserving what it sought to preserve. But then if you go look at a satellite image of the piece of territory that was subject to that 72-day standoff before summer 2017 and afterwards, you see a very different picture. You see improved roads, tents, other infrastructure for China um, on that on that piece of territory. So it was a face-saving solution. The standoff ended and they went into the um, the summits um, between Xi and Modi to try and, uh, quote, reset the relationship. Is that is that what we're going to see here um, with with this later uh, this round of crisis? And I know I know the last thing a scholar wants to be asked is to predict the future, um, but uh, you know it is it is something that I found myself wondering is what are the possible off ramps here? Yes, I mean I think um, China on the one hand right has a dilemma in its relations with India. On the one hand, it doesn't want to appear weak in the border dispute, especially in light of what it probably appears as sort of persistent. Uh, Indian efforts to improve its position. On the other hand, good ties with India actually serve a lot of Chinese strategic interests. And so that this makes me think that uh, China is not trying to dramatically alter the status quo in the Western sector. Some of the areas in which they have moved in, I don't think are particularly defensible in the long term for China. So this, this looks and feels and smells to me like signaling. Um, that would be point one. Point two would be since the line of actual control is so fuzzy. I think there are probably greater opportunities for kind of some sort of face-saving uh, de-escalation than there were uh, in Doklam because that area in some ways was pretty clearly de delineated, not just uh, because it was very narrowly defined in geographic scope, but also simply the geography in the area uh, and, and the ridge lines pretty much indicated where the boundary uh, was located. And so um, I, I think certainly uh, China has an opportunity uh, to move uh, its forces back from some of the areas in which they've moved into. Uh, and again, it's a little hard to know exactly where these are, but but I think they certainly have the opportunity to do that. And I think Indian statements, uh, public statements, including from the defense minister recently, as well as some of the other ones that you mentioned at the outset, have also, I think, tried to preserve room for a face-saving solution. And we see the same thing on the Chinese side. So. All of this leads me to believe that neither the Indian leadership, political leadership, or the Chinese political leadership has so clearly tied its hands that uh, they can't find a way to disengage. At the same time, right, this is not a small uh, Chinese action, um, and it is it is it is you know uh, much uh, larger in scope and scale than what happened in 2013 or 2014. Um, and for that reason, I think it's going to perhaps take a longer period of time. 
Taylor, we're unfortunately out of time, but I did want to thank you for uh, coming on and uh, sharing your insights on the subject. I, I learned a lot from you. So uh, thanks for joining me today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. For listeners, if you've been a subscriber to the podcast, but you haven't yet left us a review, we'd really appreciate if you could do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. We'd, uh, we'd love for you to keep up with uh, future coverage on, on this podcast. Finally, before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon with more.